AK. So I just finished watching uh, my governor's briefing. He's been doing briefings every day at 2.30. I'm in Indiana, by the way, in case you forgot. So the problem that Hoosiers are having with his briefings is that he's not addressing the questions that we have. For instance, today he talked about a kindergartner drawing pictures for nursing homes and a little kid talking about um, how parents should stay at home. It's not the time to chat up Susan and Target and just random foolishness. So I feel like Americans, especially, you know, I can vouch for my state, we're freaking out. So I feel like him doing that isn't making it better. It's making it worse. And a lot of people are talking about the way he looks, how he smirks and tries to make light of the situation. And I just kind of feel like, I know I've talked about this before with him, that as a, as a leader, as a governor, you know, you have to give people the sense of, you know, safety and security, whether or not that's actually true. Isn't the point, you know, it's like, if I'm, you know, a mom and I have, you know, four kids at home and I'm scared about, you know, how my kids are going to be if they get sick, you know, how is unemployment going to work for me? How is schooling going to work for them? Like stuff that I actually care about. And I turn on the uh, broadcast and you're talking about a five-year-old drawing pictures for nursing homes. That's great. That's a fantastic thing. And that's cute for the kid to do. But at the end of the day, it's like, come on, Holcomb. That's not what we care about. And so I watch it on Facebook. It streams live. So, you know, if you've ever watched a Facebook live video feed that it shows you the different comments that people say. And from what I've read, a lot of people are just freaking out about everything. And they're really frustrated with him because it took him forever to make a decision about if he was going to extend his order or not. The executive order that I read said that he was extending it until May 5th. And so did his Facebook post. But today he said extending it for two weeks. So I'm like, are we staying at home for two more weeks or is it May 5th? So I'm not really sure what that's about. I just got on the, um, the Indiana website and he actually uploaded a 12 page executive order. Um, I didn't get a chance to read it all, but from what I read, it looked like the order was addressing some concerns about what businesses were considered essential and how to address social distancing and like grocery, so grocery stores and other public spaces. Again, I didn't get to read it, but I'm excited the fact that it's so long. So I hope that it makes sense and that it does address the issues that um, Hoosiers are facing. So of course, you've probably heard about the situation that a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot, people that I've read about or I've seen on social media, they are concerned about the way the federal government is handling this situation, this pandemic. They feel like the government is violating our constitutional rights, our civil liberties guaranteed to us and the Bill of Rights, the first through 10th amendments. So I was reading about, you know, people saying that they thought Trump was going to declare martial law and enforce um, orders or something like that. And my thing is, I don't think out of all the presidents, Trump is not a politician. So I really think out of all the presidents or anybody that could be a president at this point, he's the one to, to like, that's least likely to do that. 
because his background is not political. So for him, I feel like that, that doesn't make sense to him, that concept. And he even said in his briefings, which I watch every day, that um, he is not going to issue a federal order because that would actually be a violation of constitutional rights. That would be a violation of the 10th Amendments. Because he said, you know, I'm going to leave that decision up to governors, which is how it's supposed to be guaranteed by the 10th Amendment. Any decisions not in the Constitution are left up to the states, the discretion of the states. So there are some governors who have not ordered stay at home orders. There's some governors that have. There's some governors that have um, determined essential businesses that weren't the same as other states. So not every governor is doing the same thing. So I feel like Trump actually saying that out loud, I hope that is um, soothing for people. I'm not really sure or not, but I feel like it would be to me if I'm freaking out about, you know, martial law and, and federal oversight and overreach. And then my president says, hey, I'm not going to do that. I'm leaving it up to the states. I would feel better about that. So another thing that I was looking at was um, how people are feeling that the National Guard is uh, being called up, being activated to enforce the law. I can't speak for the other 49 states, but in Indiana, our National Guard was activated by our governor to do one of the duties that it has, which is to aid in natural disasters and natural national emergencies or state emergencies. The president declared the United States in a, in a state of emergency. So for our governor, our governor activated the National Guard not to enforce law and order or martial law to take over the citizens or whatever. He activated them to be able to assist in uh, supplies, transporting supplies to different hospitals, warehouses. I have a friend that's actually in the National Guard and he was telling me about what he was doing. Um, he said that he's, he's been up north in northern Indiana for the past few weeks, you know, assisting different hospitals and transporting medical equipment and that type of stuff. And he's like, I was reading about people saying we were enforcing law and, and martial law and all kinds of foolishness. He's like, that's certainly not what we're doing. So, I mean, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, a lot of the stuff that Trump talks about, he talks about fake news and even some of the, um, um, oh, I can't think the, the media, the, the media in the, uh, the room, the briefing room has even said, you know, we've heard this, this, and this, can you address that? And him and even the doctors, other people are saying, you know, I don't know where you heard that information, but it is not true. And I feel like in time of crisis, spreading false information that freaks people out like that is the worst, one of the worst things you could do because Americans are already scared. They're already in a frenzy. So for you to pass out, you know, pass along some fake information doesn't help the situation. So I feel like when it comes to uh, federalizing the National Guard troops or, you know, Trump doing something like that, I feel like he wouldn't do that because I don't think that he feels it's necessary for the federal government to enforce order. So I feel like he thinks, you know, at this point, it's still at the state level. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, that's a good idea. It's a good way for him to feel. But of course, the, the issue is a lot of people from what I've read, from what I've seen, are still not taking this seriously. And I think that's what's causing the spread. Because I think last time I checked, we were at like 10,000 deaths. 
And this is all within a couple of weeks. Some people were comparing this to the regular flu, the seasonal flu or H1N1, but those deaths, the 30,000 plus deaths or, or whatever they are, they're not within a matter of weeks. It's like a period of like seven months to a year. So within a few weeks, we've had like 10,000 people die. And part of the issue with the virus is that it spreads so quickly and a lot of people are not showing symptoms. Now, there are plenty of people who actually recover from it, probably most do, but then you have those who are at risk, the elderly. You have um, our uh, doctor today, she probably offended people when she called Indiana a fat state, but she said we're number 12 or something like that. The question was asking her, you know, she said that those who have a high BMI would also be considered for testing. And they asked why. And she said, you know, if you have a high BMI, that means you're obese. And that means that you have diabetes and you're at a higher risk for health problems. So they want to test those people as well to make sure that they don't have the virus. Because if they do, that could be life threatening for them. And I think I talked about my mom. My mom has high blood pressure. So she's at a risk. Um, She actually got tested because she went to the hospital, to the emergency room, because she's been having problems. She's had, they said she had the flu, which they said she still has, but she's been having problems breathing and they did um, x-rays and stuff like that. And they said that her chest, like her, it was full of fluid or something like that, mucus or whatever. But so she doesn't have coronavirus. They uh, did a test and they told her within, I think it was like 24, 48 hours that she does not have coronavirus, that it's still the flu. She's still trying to get over the flu. But basically, she's very susceptible to that because she has high blood pressure, because she's sick right now. Her immune system is, you know, pretty low anyway. And so she has pre-existing factors that she could end up getting coronavirus from somebody who maybe doesn't show symptoms, somebody who had it and got over it, maybe didn't know they had it, that type of thing. So I feel like when it comes to spreading the virus, that's the issue. And I feel like Americans, I I really want and hope people to start taking this seriously because I feel like if people took this seriously, we wouldn't have the spread. It wouldn't continue to spread as it is. I mean, I was reading last night about people still saying that this is fake and it's a democratic hoax and all this kind of information. I'm thinking if this is a democratic hoax, how was it affecting millions of people around the world? If it's a democratic hoax, not only that, but the virus was in other parts of the world before it came to the U.S. So I don't understand how people are still saying, you know, it's fake. It's a democratic hoax. I don't understand that. But from what I, I heard last night, I think it was that um, they said 450,000 Chinese people came to the U.S. during the time frame of like us not knowing the severity of or even know it ha- that it happened. I'm not saying all 450,000 Chinese people had it, but just the fact that 450,000 people might have been exposed to it or, or whatnot. And so it's like coming here, you know, I feel like maybe that had some type of effect. I, I really don't know. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I know Trump said that last night. He's like, I'm not a doctor, you know, and it's like I can only speculate just from what I've seen, what I've read and what I've heard. And it's it's just really frustrating for people to still not take this seriously to still make it political democrats and republicans they're still trying to make this political uh with the um 
the $1.2 trillion um, relief act. I'm not even sure the proper name for it. The, I don't, I don't really know. Uh, my brain is just so fried right now. So I feel like, and people are talking about, um, how that's socialism and we shouldn't do this and, and this kind of stuff and, and blah, blah, blah. Now at the end of the day, people at this point don't have any money. They don't have jobs. They have kids and families to take care of. So if this is socialism and it provides people money to take care and feed their kids, I don't think people care at this point. Some people might, I think the people that might care are the ones who have money. The ones that, you know, didn't have to live paycheck to paycheck or the type of jobs they had, you know, their, their factories or their stores closed down. They're not getting paid, you know, while they're not working. So those people who have money might feel that way, but those who don't, you know, and I was reading about that. There's a, some single moms. They're like, Hey, I'm a single mom. I've got a few kids and I don't have a job. So how am I supposed to take care and feed my kids right now? And then of course, unemployment is backed up all over the country. Everybody's applying and everything. So that's, that's backed up. So, and then you have to get the, the payments to go out. I mean, there's just so much stuff going on and it frustrates me seeing that people are still making this a political situation because like Trump said, he's been saying at the end of the day, he cares about saving American lives. And I feel like, I don't want to say like by any means necessary, but I do feel like for him, his administration, for most people in general, they care about saving American lives. So, which is how I feel with the governor's imposing the stay-at-home orders or doing restrictions on, you know, who could be out and about, you know, crowds of people limited to 10 or, or things like that, whatever that is, that might impose on your constitutional rights. It probably does, depending on how you look at it. But I think I talked about before how a lot of times people are not okay with, but, but understand the concept of giving up um, their rights for a limited amount of time for safety and security. So it's like, if the government's job is to protect you and the government is setting these steps in order to help combat this virus, it could be infringing on your constitutional rights, but that's the government's way of protecting you. Now again, I mean, how I feel about it, to be honest, I mean, I, I just feel like I, I'm on Trump's side in this instance. I feel like it's about saving American lives. So whether or not our rights are being infringed upon, you know, the Fourth Amendment, the Tenth Amendment, you know, whatever amendment you want to talk about, if they're being infringed upon, at the end of the day, it's, I mean, isn't it important to save Americans? Now, the thing is, if the government took no steps whatsoever, if the government, like this is going on around the world, but the United States government did nothing about it because they didn't want to infringe on people's rights, right? And millions of people died because of this. Wouldn't Americans feel like, oh, well, the government should have done or said something because now we've had millions of Americans die. They didn't take action and blah, blah, blah. So I feel like either way, it's like a lose-lose situation in this instance. And I feel people are like, oh, well, this is the government's way of being able to control our lives because once this pandemic is over, once we get past this, they'll still try to have that stuff set in place, which makes no sense, first of all, and that type of thing. I was reading that somebody said that 
uh, part of the whole democratic hoax thing. They said it was a democratic hoax because the Democrats are trying to shut down or push back the presidential election. And I'm like, really guys, the presidential election is going to happen either way. But at the end of the day, I mean, who cares about this kind of stuff right now? I mean, some people do, a lot of people do, and that's, that's fine. But it's like, if you have any family at all in the United States, especially if they're in these hot spots locations, and I found out Indiana is becoming a hot spot location, that shouldn't it be more important to care about your loved ones? Now, there's some people that are listening that might say, no, it's not more important. My rights are more important. And that's fine. It's your right as an American to feel that way. That's absolutely fine. But the situation at hand, it's, it should be about caring about each other, caring about our own health. And I mean, I'm kind of like, not lost on that, but I guess conflicted is the better word, you know? And it makes me think about 9-11. Like I understand people's concerns, like their legitimate concerns, like with 9-11, how the Bush administration was able to pass the Patriot Act, which, you know, legally allowed the the government to spy on you, put you under surveillance, you know, literally violating the Fourth Amendment right, not having to have, you know, warrants and that type of thing because of 9-11. So I understand where where people are concerned with that. You know, it was like a natural, it was a natural disaster. It was a a terrorist attack on the country. And some people say like the federal government like capitalized on that because people were scared and they were passing these different things because they knew people would be okay with it because they were scared. They wanted to make sure the government protected them and that sort of thing. So I do get where people are freaking out saying, you know, once this is over, what's the government going to do to us? But at this point, what the government is doing is providing social distancing guidelines. So once this is over, this isn't something like 9-11 to where you know, the Patriot Act, you know, different parts of it are still in place, social distancing guidelines, that that doesn't make sense for them to stay in place once this pandemic is over because it doesn't, it doesn't correlate. It doesn't make sense because right now we're correlating the sickness with the social distancing, which is, that's fine. Once the sickness is over, what sense does it make to still have social distancing? It doesn't. So in that instance, that doesn't really make too much sense. Now, the issue is if the government decides to take more action, if the federal government decides to take more action in regards to the pandemic and not just social distancing, that's the issue right there. If that actually happens, will it happen? I I really don't think so. I mean, people are just freaking out both ways. They're freaking out, you know, about, Hey, is my family going to die? from the disease, from, from the virus? Are we going to die from starvation? Am I going to get evicted out of my house? You know, all these different things. And then other people are concerned about, you know, their constitutional rights being infringed upon and, you know, the United States turning into a a militarized police state, which, I mean, these are all valid concerns. And I, I just feel like people at this point, I'm not trying to minimalize people's feelings, but at the end of the day, I mean, all this political stuff, all this stuff set aside, it's about the American people. And Trump has said that over and over and over, you know, when the the fake news media was trying to put words in his mouth and he's like, look, you're trying to put words in my mouth, stuff that I didn't say. I'm telling you right now, what I care about is is saving and protecting the American people. And I, I agree. I think that 
that is important right now. Now the issue, once this pandemic ends, hopefully it ends soon, but once it ends, then we can go back and address these political issues that we still have. Um, even some of his uh, administrators and his um, cabinet, I'm, I don't know everybody's name, but I know, I'm trying to think, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, I'm not really sure who, who, who. But they made comments, they did make comments, they did bring it up about the situation with China. How after this is over, the United States should reevaluate their relationship with China. I know I said that too, but I think the entire world should evaluate their relationship with China. China becoming a part of the global economy is very problematic because their form of government is communist or is authoritarian capitalism, as I like to say. So as a communist form of government, they control their people, they control the media, they control information, they control everything in the sense of what's going on inside their country. So I feel like being a part of the global economy is problematic because you're not being transparent. So for instance, if China had informed the world as soon as this coronavirus was discovered and not hiding it for X amount of weeks or months or whatever, then it would have a different, it would have had a different effect. If China was like, hey, you know, I'm gonna let the world know we've got this virus in Wuhan, one of our provinces, people are dying, people are getting really sick. I just wanna let you guys know, you know, if you've had any Chinese people come into your country recently, hey, give you a heads up, you know, because these people are sick, they're dying. And the world could be like, okay, China, cool. We're gonna prepare for this, this pandemic to come to us and not just, oh, it's just something in China. But China didn't do that. China didn't do that until it actually started spreading around the world. And even now, I was reading about how they said they had no new cases reported. And now they have new cases reported and the number of deaths and this, this, and this. Basically, we can't trust any information that comes out of China whatsoever. So it's like the world, the global economy is kind of at a loss because most countries in the world have business with China which is why it's, it's spread all over the world. So if you have business with China and then you go back to your home country or you had contact with somebody who has a relationship with China business-wise, and so it's, it's just spreading all over the world. And I feel like with this situation, this could have been avoided because if China had been transparent and honest from the beginning and not have these doctors, I was reading about the doctors who were trying to speak out against this or to warn people, they, they've disappeared. Where are they at? Of course, they're probably dead, but it's, it's like, you know, you, you had Chinese doctors trying to say, hey, this is really what happened. I'm trying to let you guys know, and then they disappear. So if China was transparent about this coronavirus with the world, that we would have been better able to prepare. Now, I kind of think part, I mean, I'm not really sure how China feels about it at this situation. Now they're probably using it to their advantage because a lot of countries around the world depend on China for a lot, a lot of things, but especially medical supplies. So with them not telling the world about this pandemic, well, it didn't become a pandemic until it, you know, went around the world, that would force the countries affected to do business with China in the sense of now they're scrambling to buy more medical equipment, ventilators, masks, gowns, you know, whatever they need. 
so it's like is China using this to a financial advantage now the thing with that is also China knows how the world is how the world feels about them again their form of government so how do they think this would would play out like do they think it wouldn't backfire on them I mean I, I kind of feel like at, the, at this point other countries around the world are kind of questioning you know hey in the, in the midst of a, a national emergency in all these different countries we're relying on China a whole lot more than we should be so I think some people are kind of scratching their heads like okay now once this is over what what are we going to do about our, our trade business with China what are we going to do about that so I, I, I mean, I think, I don't know if the Chinese people have thought about this. I shouldn't say people, the Chinese government. I mean, they're people too, but not the, like the Chinese people as a whole, the Chinese government. If they thought about that, that this will probably backfire on them because people, a lot of people blame China anyway. And they're not blaming China for having it. Well, some are. They're blaming China for not informing the world, not informing, informing the global economy. And because of this, a lot of countries, as, as can be expected, are, you know, they feel some type of way towards China. And of course, even if you feel some type of way towards China, if they're the ones that provide you medical equipment, you still have to rely on them at this point. So once this is over, how is this going to affect re- uh, relationships between China and the different countries that they trade with? Um, I know that some people have thought about it. Some people, some people haven't, or if they have, they haven't really discussed it. And again, this is also what I'm talking about, how this is not the time for politics and business. And this isn't the time for any of that. It's just like, once this is over, once the world gets back to normal, which I hope will be soon, then it's time for politics. Then it's time for trade agreements. Then it's time for business and factories and all those sorts of things. Right now is not the time, but it is important to governments to think about this. Because if they think about it now, once it's over, they can have, I guess, a game plan, so to speak, of what to do next. So one thing, one thing that I saw yesterday, and I had to, I had to like double check, I had to reread this. So apparently, China joined the UN Human Rights Council. Let me say that again. China joined the UN Human Rights Council. Or cancel, it should be canceled. Council. China is a very problematic country in, in regards to politics, but also China has a lot of human rights violations, which is why people send their factories over there because the Chinese, the Chinese government controls everything. So they control the amount of money people make and that type of thing. So it's, it's cheap labor. So how, how is China a part of the UN Human Rights Council? So again, I don't know. And then not only, not only that, but how is that happening right now? How have they been approved right now in the middle of this pandemic caused by them, hidden by their government? How are they part of the UN Human Rights Council right now? So I think, again, once all this is over, that this is going to have to be reevaluated. And I'm not sure like who supported that because... I definitely know the United States was not in support of that and probably a lot of other countries. So I don't understand how that became, actually I do understand. It's all about politics and money and power and government. That's, that's what it is. But it's like, come on guys, like looking at that, really China, really part of the human rights council. 
And when it comes to the global economy, I feel at this point that, again, countries should reevaluate their relationship, relationships with China. But I also think that the global economy should reevaluate its reevaluate. Oh, I'm sorry. Reevaluate its relationship with China as a part of it, because at the end of the day, if you can't play ball, you shouldn't be in the game. So China having this communist form of government that controls everything, information, what what gets out, their people, everything, and that's not how the global economy, how the rest of the countries in the world work. You shouldn't be a part of that. Now I know what I'm saying is very controversial. Some people may agree, some people may not, but I understand that it's it's very hard because for the past what 30 plus years, the U.S. has been you know really dependent on China for you know trade and that type of thing. So it's like, how would you undo 30 years of that? And not just for the U.S., other countries around the world. So it's like, I mean, I'm, I don't know. I'm confused on how to, how to even accomplish that. It's probably a utopian idea, which is fine. I mean, you know, but I, I just, I would like it to be realistic. That'd be great. But how would you do that? How would you, you know, and not just the U.S., other countries in the world, how would you be able to pull back from China, from relying on China at this point? What, what would you do? Like, cause a lot of countries, they've sent their factories or whatever overseas to China. So they don't even have the capability to make that stuff or whatever they need anymore. So how do you get, not only that, so it's like, how do you do that? But also a lot of countries also have like trade agreements with them and, and trade deals. So how could you back out of that? It's like when you rent an apartment or rent a house or whatever, and you sign a one year lease and you break the lease, you leave early, you have to pay. You have to pay. So say your lease ends in December. You move out in uh, September. You have to pay four months um, rent. So, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm kind of like thinking in my head and trying to talk at the same time. So you have to pay four months rent because you broke the contract. Now, in regards to, I'm not sure how that works, how that would even work with a trade situation because renting an apartment is a whole lot cheaper than billions of dollars of trade deals. So, and I think some people, some countries might have these deals for, you know, obviously more than a, like longer than a year. So... I just, how would, how would any of this work? I mean, I wish I had the answers to my question, but I don't think anybody really has the answer to my question, but I know that people probably are really, really thinking about this really hard because if China does this again, which China is very shady. And so they, they probably will do something like this again, especially seeing, and it's like, that's the thing too, China, it appears that China is being rewarded for their foolishness rewarded as in they get a seat on the human rights council but i mean in spite of their foolishness so what is that teaching china hey we can pull this crap again and then we'll get some other kind of reward from you know the global economy the un or or some other kind of recognition but it's like this also affects china in the sense of the economy is basically i don't want to say closed down but it kind of is so not too much um, 
stuff is going on in regards to money like the the price of oil is down you know all that kind of stuff so I feel like I mean I don't know I just wish that I just I could just figure this out I mean I know I'm only one person I am a political scientist by trade but beside the point I just feel like I wish there was a solution that I could think of or something that would like reassure not only myself but also you know the people that I I talk to on my podcast the people that I talk to in person you know other social media that type of thing people do ask me questions because they know my political background so they they ask me questions about this kind of stuff and they're like hey you know you're you're in the politics you went to school for this what do you think what do you you know I'm like I can tell you what I think but I don't like their their question is you know what do you think will happen after this what should we do I'm like I don't know like I understand they want my input but I like I really don't know what would be a solution how would this be resolved and it's like would it take years like would it take the same amount of would it take 30 years how would this work maybe part of the solution to be the other countries that depend on China which is pretty much everybody in the world to to band together and somehow I don't I don't know somehow I don't say push China out but like I, I really I really don't know I'm struggling with this explanation myself so I mean if you got you guys listening if you have any ideas of how to do that or or even like if that's a reasonable rational thing to do to even try to do that I mean whether or not it's it's rational or reasonable I feel like it's still something that should be done or at least or at least attempted to be done because China should not be rewarded for this foolishness they really should not and their reward would be they cause this whole pandemic lie about it all these people are dying getting sick and then it's business as usual so literally once this is over China goes back to doing business with everybody. They have their seat in the Human Rights Council. So it's like, what's the punishment for China? What's the motivation for them not to do it again? And whether or not it actually started out like that, like as a political move or whatever you want to call it, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it actually started out like that. It could just be the Chinese government just trying to cover up, you know, something that's wrong in their country. But then once they saw how it affected the world like the global economy then it's like okay we can make this work we can do something with this now so I just I don't know I feel like you know there should be some type of punishment something and I think it should be drastic I think it should be to the point where China's not going to do something like this again and China's worked really really hard to become a part of the global economy and it's been tough because of their political ideology you know, most countries in the world do not have the, the sort of government that China has. So it's hard to do business with this country. It's hard to include them because we're not on the same page with the government, their government. So it's like China's had to work really hard to get, you know, get their foot in the door, so to speak. So it's like, I feel like they should, they shouldn't be rewarded. There should be some type of punishment that that affects them to the point where it's like, wow, we probably shouldn't do this ever again. We should be more transparent with the world in regards to some type of, you know, national emergency that we have. So, I mean, that's 
that's my kind of my thought process on that. What can we do? What can we do? I mean, and it's not just, again, not just the U.S., but the world in, in general, global economy and stuff like that. How, how, would we, how would we be able to negatively impact China to the point where it, it cripples them? Like it, it cripples. And that's the thing. I, I think it would take a lot to do that, too. So how do we, those who are listening, if you have any ideas or you want to just kind of talk it out with me or leave me a message or something like that, I would love to hear from you. Um, my Twitter account again is AK17033. So you can send me a message or, you know, leave a comment on there. And I would love to engage in a, in a discussion about this because I, I really want a solution to this situation. Now I know it's again it's it's highly I don't know I don't want to say impossible but it's it's not really realistic at this point in time and I'm aware of that I totally know at this point you know this is not something that should be looked at you know in the near future now maybe like a few years down the road once everything is because I'm not really sure how long it's going to take the world to get back to normal or, or a new normal or whatever that might be because this has really affected, you know, almost every country in the world. People have been hit. They're dying. I mean, thousands and thousands of people have died in Italy. I mean, it's just everywhere. So it's, it's crippling economies. It's, you know, impacting lives, people's families, government. So this is very, very uh, dramatic or tra- traumatic. I shouldn't say, sorry, not dramatic, traumatic for countries around the world people around the world so how do we build ourselves back up you know and it's like I mean I don't know I guess it's kind of some people also compare it not only to 9-11 but 9-11 it did affect it it did affect globally somewhat but it was mainly the United States but something like World War II that was something that had a global effect on uh, the economy around the world I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just, this is just something that I feel like is unprecedented. And, and I thought, I thought I, um, I thought I've talked about this before. I don't remember what I talk about, to be honest. Um, I try to have like outlines and stuff, but the way I am, it's how I write my papers. I don't do outlines. I just write it and I go back and make sure it makes sense. So when it comes to reporting a pod, recording a podcast, I can't go back and make sure it makes sense, but I can just say it, I guess. So I, I don't know if I've talked about this before or not, but when it comes to uh, the reaction of the United States, because again, everybody knows whether or not you're an American doesn't matter. Everybody knows the United States is the country that sets the tone for the rest of the world. The example, the rest of the world usually follows or kind of, you know, hey, the United States did this, we should do this too, or think about this, this, and this. So the, should the United States, if the United States, United States takes initiative with pulling out of China, how would that affect the rest of the world? Would they see our example? I guess if it's a successful example, that's what it'd have to be, and say, hey, the United States was able to do that, so we can too. Let's follow their lead type of thing. 
I'm not sure, but I know I I do not appreciate China on some foolishness trying to make themselves be the humanitarian around the world since the United States is is crippled by this as well and, and we can't do what we usually do to help others to be the the savior of the world type of thing china is obviously doing it for photo op and china is just foolish right now and at this point countries are desperate so whether or not china is using this for political gain their foolishness it doesn't matter people are desperate but it does kind of it kind of sucks actually you know the fact that the u.s we're not in a position to to be that that global leader that we usually are and it's like out of all the countries to, to like quote unquote take our place it's china really the country that caused this foolishness the country who has people disappearing who are trying to speak out against this or tell the world the truth they're the ones that are trying to take over and be the savior of the world are you freaking kidding me so that that needs to needs to end you know like now i know it, it can't just yet but it, china just i don't know and i mean i shouldn't be too hard on china mainly because the clothes I'm wearing, the phone I'm using, the TV I'm watching, everything in my freaking house is probably made in China. So I shouldn't be too hard on them in the sense of, you know, my iPhone cost just over a thousand dollars being made in China, where it's cheap labor. Imagine how much it'd be being made here in the US. So I can't be too hard on China when it comes to that kind of stuff. I, I am appreciative of, of that, but I still don't appreciate them trying to manipulate this, this situation and, and use it for their own gain. I feel like that's childish. Frankly, it's childish. It, it really is. It's, it's very childish that they're doing this. And it's, I mean, to me as an American, I can't speak for other countries, but it's also offensive. It's offensive because maybe other countries might be offended too. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I mean, maybe the ones who are like used to the United States helping them might be, I don't know, but I'm just offended because the, the stuff that the United States has done worldwide, you know, globally to help people, save people, you know, provide assistance, aid, even uh, rebuild governments, create democracy, all the stuff we've done around the world for everybody. I'm kind of offended because it's like all the stuff that we've done, how dare you, China, how dare you come out and, and try to and try to take over it would be completely different if China was trying to say they had a democratic form of government that would be really offensive at this point but they're not going to do that but it's just like so are they trying to seem like they're better than the United States because hey the U.S. is affected by this um this virus so they can't help you guys but we can type of thing and it's like well they might be able to do so but it's like let's not forget their form of government, the oppression of their people, the lies, the foolishness, you know, the, the cover-ups, all this kind of stuff. The, hopefully the, the global, the global um, countries globally, the countries globally do not forget about this because I know when people are desperate, it, I mean, it doesn't really matter. If you're, if you're starving and you need to get something to eat, you haven't eaten in X amount of days, you're going to do whatever you have to do, whether it's eat out of the trash can, if it's go to the grocery store and rob somebody, you know, just whatever, go to McDonald's and steal stuff, you know, that you're going to do what whatever it takes because you're desperate. And so right now, China is aware that people are doing or going to do, willing to do whatever it takes because they're desperate. So they're also using, using the other countries, using this to their advantage. And I'm just, I just think it's foolishness. 
it's uh, very offensive and I think that somehow some way the global economy really has to reevaluate our relationship with China and maybe also with each other as well I mean if we if we pull back from China you know we could help each other out somehow I just I don't know I just think that this is just really not right and again I know a lot of people in the world wouldn't be upset well it's probably probably wouldn't have affected the world as it has right now if China hadn't lied and covered it up and that type of thing if China had announced it as soon as they found out this was a thing and it was killing people people were sick you know because China China does business with everybody in the world I mean that's not a secret so it's not surprising that it would affect you know almost every other country in the world but if China had announced it when it was when it was going on you know countries wouldn't be short of ventilators and masks and gowns and other hospital hospital equipment because they would have been prepared they would have like stockpiled so to speak so especially like with the U.S. you know how our our governor our doctor um I forgot her title like I know it's not like the state doctor it's it's she's somebody important but she was talking about that how you know the limited number of supplies you know you've got people that are trying to sew masks out of um fabric in their home because we don't have enough you know type of stuff so if if China had announced this and the thing is if China had done it this again this is my speculation if China had done that they could have made a lot more money I think because everybody would have been trying to buy up all the stuff to prepare so I mean if you're I mean being desperate right now buying the stuff from China but it's different to stockpile to prepare for the pandemic to come to you that China could have actually made more money doing it I think and then not only that but China would would have maybe had a more positive impact around the world maybe the world would think of China a little differently and say hey you know China was honest and transparent with us they had this virus going on in their country they saw it was killing people people were getting sick it was really serious and wow they shared with the whole world that this was happening they prepared us you know da, da, da. so that's great we can look at China a little differently whether or not that's true I don't know but that that could have been an option so I don't know it's just like it's just really frustrating at this point what to do how to do it it's like I just wish people would just stay in the freaking house like I understand and it's totally valid valid to have these concerns about your constitutional rights you know the civil liberties you know the government telling you what to do what you can and can't do type of thing and I I understand how people feel about this trust me I do I remember again I remember 9-11 I remember you know I wasn't I, I was one that was always questioning so I was like well hold on a minute why how, how are they sneaking in this whole Patriot Act thing they're they're uh, using the fear of Americans right now to do X Y and Z like I understood that I wasn't alive for World War II but I understood I understood that and as time went on I'm really starting to see and people are you know still supportive of it and Department of Homeland Security being created which is a good thing you know all these different organizations and different law and I'm like what how is this happening? And of course, after the whole, the whole like hysteria kind of calmed down and we realized, you know, hey, we're safe and that type of thing. People were like, hold on a minute. Now they're questioning what happened. But I was one that always questioned it. Like the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. I thought that was a bunch of BS. And 
I was I was questioning that when the lawmakers and the other senators and politicians weren't. And I actually got I got called quite a few names for that. I got called un-American, unpatriotic, um, some some curse curse words thrown in there. And my thing was, so I'm unpatriotic and I'm un-American, and I'm a blankety blank because I'm questioning the validity and legality of what's happening. I, I never said that I hated America. I was unpatriotic. I never said that. I was just questioning. Why are we going to war in Iraq? What does that have to do with anything to do with Al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, none of that? And of course, some people speculate that, you know, Bush wanted to do it because he wanted to take out Saddam Hussein because he threatened his dad back in the 80s or whatever. Whether or not that's true, I don't know. But I kind of felt like, what, what does that have to do with Afghanistan or Al-Qaeda? And Afghanistan, it didn't make sense to me because Al-Qaeda was a... Even st- does it still exist? I think it does. I don't know. I know other organizations do. It, it was a, um, a nomadic organization. So the fact that Al Qaeda's home base at the time was in Afghanistan, do you really think they're going to stay in Afghanistan after doing that? So it's like, that's how I felt about that. And once we get into Afghanistan, it becomes, oh, we want to get rid of the Taliban and we want to free the people and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, well, that wasn't what the original mission was. So. I don't understand why that was a thing. I mean, if anybody knows about um, Osama bin Laden, Osama bin Laden uh, was Saudi Arabian and his views became so radical that basically his family disowned him. His father was wealthy. His father was very rich. So he, you know, had that money to live off of, but he and his, his citizenship was even stripped. Like he literally had nowhere to go. So Al Qaeda became, was a nomadic organization. So it's like, so, okay, yeah, they're in Afghanistan right now. They could be in Pakistan. They could be in... Uh, India, they can be in Bangladesh, they could be in Kazakhstan, they could be anywhere in the world. So it's like going to war with a country over a nomadic organization to me did not make sense. It's like fighting like the war on an idea, like the war on terror. That's terror is an idea. It's, a, it's not a thing. It's not somebody you can like defeat, like, like military, like, you know, you go and you kill, you know, military personnel of another country. You can't kill terror. And like the war on drugs, you know, you can't kill drugs. I mean, it, it just, it, it just really didn't make sense to me. And then of course, when we get to Afghanistan, find out, you know, Al Qaeda's not there, duh. And it's, it just didn't make sense to me. And I kind of feel like maybe part of it was the U.S., the Bush administration, maybe they didn't want to look dumb. I, I mean, I don't know. I just, my mind is just still blown. You know, 20 years later, my mind is still blown about this. Did they not want to look dumb? that Al-Qaeda wasn't there anymore and they wanted to change the mission to get rid of Taliban and, pro- and promote democracy and freedom, all this kind of stuff. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I need to get inside Bush, Cheney, Rice, you know, Powell, their heads, you know, Rumsfeld, but I, I don't know. That was just something that, again, was, was very interesting to me uh, when, when that happened. And I, when, Iraq, oh, when Iraq started, I was just like, really, guys? come on okay all right and um I am from a military family and my dad he he was activated but he wasn't deployed overseas he was supposed to be but he injured himself so they kept him stateside which he was really upset about it you know he wanted to go be in the action you know that type of thing but he was supposed to go overseas and he hurt himself so they you know, just deployed him stateside. And 
and I think he went to, where he, he went to Texas. He went to Texas, uh, Fort Hood, Killeen, Fort Hood. That's where he was, um, during that time. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. And the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have been officially declared over. But I mean, at this point, there's always going to be some type of American military presence in those countries. That's usually how it works. Whenever we go to war with a country or even like help a country fight, whatever we do with the country, we usually leave some type of American military presence there to kind of maintain or just kind of keep an eye on, you know, help assist that kind of thing the other country so with with that I mean I I don't know the wars are supposed to be over but again I have friends in the military and they're like hey you know the wars are are officially over but unofficially you know so it's just like I, I don't know the this whole situation is just and I'm sorry I ended up rambling I was talking about coronavirus and my governor ended up talking about the war in Afghanistan the war in Iraq I apologize (laughs) but okay so yeah back to that so again my governor did a 12 page executive order and I'm really excited because his other executive orders have been like two to three pages and the first page and a half is just like repeating what he's already said so the fact that it's 12 pages is fantastic that's really good so I'm hoping that it's something that I'm like, yes, I can get on board. Thank you, Governor Holcomb, for doing this. I appreciate it type of thing. But, oh, back to the military stuff. So today, or not today, the month of April is, um, it's called Month of the Military Child. It's something that's been going on, I think it was 1983. And obviously it's, it's kind of self-explanatory, you know, the military child, celebrating military children. And I think it's great. And I think that, it's wonderful because, I mean, obviously, you know, that's my life. If you listen to my other podcast about uh, my professor making me feel some type of way about, you know, my life growing up as a military kid, but the, uh, the color that represents us as military kids is purple. And I was reading about why, and they said it was kind of because the different colors of the armed forces mi- like mixed together would, would kind of create a purplish color. I don't care, but my favorite color is purple. Like seriously like everything I have that can be purple is purple my bedding my my clothes like half my closet is purple clothes my glasses I wear you know shoes furniture I mean just everything is purple so the fact that the military kids color is purple I'm like yes I can get on board with that so to all the other military kids out there uh, I want to say that you know I, I appreciate you and your families as well uh you know we're both we're both about that life um, whether it be your mom, dad, grandma, you know, auntie, uncle, whoever, who was, whoever was in the military, you know, I appreciate their service. And, and if you join, that's great too. I appreciate your service as well. I think that, uh, military kids are, are very versatile because we have to go through a lot growing up, whether or not it's like deployments or if it's just your parent being gone all the time. You know, for me, I was in I think I talked about this. I was in Germany during the Cold War. And so we were we were deployed. Well, I guess not deployed, but stationed in Germany during the Cold War. And, you know, it was really hard on my my family, my mom, especially because, you know, they were they were young. This was his first duty station and he joined right after high school. So they were really young, you know, and to be gone away from family. And we were there for like three years. 
So to be gone away from family, you know, not knowing anybody and then being young like that with, you know, with a kid. And it was really, really stressful for both of them. And, you know, I, I'm the oldest. So I was the firstborn. So and I was the I was a baby. When we went. So it's like my mom not having, you know, her mom or any of her family members to kind of help her, you know, learn about motherhood, become, you know, assist her in that instance. It was really hard. So I, I do, you know, understand the struggles and the sacrifices that we make and that your family makes as being in the military. And it's greatly appreciated. I appreciate that. I'm about that life. And I wanted to join. But I think I talked about before how I'm automatically DQ'd. I'm overweight, you know, the height to weight ratio and my BMI, I guess I'd be considered fat, like a fat state. I'm an Indian, a fat state. My BMI is like 30, <laughs> 32 or 33, but I'm short. Okay. I'm short. I'm 5'2". So if you look at the BMI chart, being 5'2", you can't weigh a whole lot. So I'm not, I, I mean, I don't look fat. I'm just, my BMI is just off the chart. So I'm, I'm way too overweight and I have pre-existing medical conditions. I take medication, you know, I'm automatically DQ'd from joining. I did want to join. I wanted to join after I graduated college with my bachelor's degree. I wanted to join as an officer, but again, that it's not going to happen. Can't happen, which is fine. You know, I still support uh, the military. My dad was in the army for um, almost 30 years. So again, military kids out there, I appreciate you, you know, Thank you for, for being you. I mean, it's kind of like, I'm saying this like you had a choice. You didn't really have a choice to be a military kid unless your parents are like, hey, do you want to live with grandma and grandpa? Do you not want to come with us type of thing? But it's, uh, it's a life. It's a lifestyle. And it for me, it provided a lot of um, discipline and structure and order. You know, when I was growing up as a kid, I didn't understand. You know, as a little kid, like, for instance, my dad, <laughs> my dad would make me, again, I was the oldest, so he didn't do this with the other ones. He would make me make my bed, but he would have me do hospital corners. Like that's literally how I made my bed. And I'm just like, what? Who does that? And so of course, you know, later on, it's kind of like, this is ridiculous, but it's like the, the order and the structure that, that I got from, from him as a dad and as, you know, being in the military, as I'm older now, I'm just like, wow, there's so many people I see out here just on some foolishness. They don't have structure, they don't have order, they don't have discipline, they don't have self-respect, they don't have the qualities that I have growing up. Like not everybody has those qualities. And I know, I don't mean to, I don't mean to offend anybody. I know it's not something that's um, exclusive to the military. I understand that completely. I don't wanna offend you if you're not military related, I'm sorry, but I'm talking about it from my, my perspective, my point of view, that as a military kid growing up, this is what I saw. And that was the example that was modeled for me. So, you know, as I was growing up, you know, I don't think, did I have any friends that were military kids? I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't really know. So it's like then my lifestyle was really, really different from theirs because I had the order and structure that was provided with the military and they didn't. I'm like, your parents let you do that? Your dad let you do that? What? Your dad doesn't, no, he doesn't let me do that. You know, that type of thing. And it, um, it's a it's a very a very interesting life. Um, I, I do miss it. You know, I'm thinking about getting all nostalgic. You know how I grew up and stuff. And you know, I, I do miss it. It was it was tough at times. It really was. But it was something that, as an adult, I'm really glad that it was something that I went through because I was able to endure a lot. And it basically, you know, provided strength for for me as a person. You know, as a kid, and independence. You know, I learned independence at a young age. You know. 
my dad did not baby us or you know just none of that like no and I loved how he never treated us differently because it's me I'm the oldest I have a younger brother and a younger sister and he never treated us different you know oh you're a girl you should be doing this you're a boy you should be doing that no it was like a (laughs) like a gender neutral household so to speak like I had Barbie dolls I had the Mattel cars I used to collect those back from the uh what was like the the mid 90s like early I'm trying to remember those cars were popular early to mid 90s I don't remember but I used to have those you know so so my dad was never one of those people that was like oh you're a girl you know you're a boy because you know the military like I said on my last podcast you know you're you're part of the group you know you're not you're not a man a woman woman you, you're still a man or a woman don't get me wrong but you're part of the group so it's like in the military generally the stuff that the men can do the woman can do you know so growing up that was kind of like the uh, the environment that my dad provided and my mom you know, she um, really supported him and supported, you know, the military, the military life. So the kind of stuff that, um, you know, he emphasized and instilled in us, you know, she also emphasized and instilled with us. I don't want to say, make it seem like my mom didn't do anything. My mom was fantastic. My mom was great. You know, they were a really good team, like a really good tandem. You know, it's like he, he was a disciplinarian and she was the nurturer, like usually, you know, how most moms are, but she still had the same principles that he did. It was just coming from a different perspective, from the softer, you know, more feminine maternal perspective. So, I mean, I think, you know, they, they both did a really great job in um, raising me and instilling in me, you know, what I've learned, what I use to this day. And I incorporate a lot of that into the classroom, how I treated my students. And before I even like introduce myself to my new students, they're kind of like, you grew up in a military family, didn't you? I'm like, what do you mean? How do you know that? Like you did, didn't you? I'm like, yeah, you know, they're like, I can just tell just, just the way you are. But also part of it gave it away was calling them sir and ma'am. I call everybody sir and ma'am. That's what I grew up. I grew up, you know, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. So when I, when my kids would raise their hand, I'm like, yes, ma'am. And so that kind of thing, they're like, yeah, you grew up in a military family. And with uh with the older people too i would refer to them as ma'am and sir there is a i remember when um somebody called me called my classroom it was one of the administrators and she called i said yes ma'am and she started laughing and i was thinking to myself how was that funny but i'm like okay i guess people don't say ma'am and sir anymore but i don't know but i talk like that i call you know kids ma'am and sir my mom she's also a teacher as well ma'am and sir and one thing is I always call people by their last names. I can't call people by their first names. When it comes to kids, I do try to call them by their, I either call them ma'am or sir or their first name. Uh, Cause some of them have di- the same last name. But when it comes to like adults, people in authority, I-, I don't even say Mr. and Mrs. I don't say Mrs. Smith, Mr. Smith. I just say Smith, you know, Hey, did you talk to Smith yet? I, I just, it's just out of habit. It's just like, I can't, I just really struggle calling people in authority by their first names. It doesn't matter if they're younger than me or older than me. If they have authority over me, I just have a really hard time calling them by their first name. Like with my, well, professors and teachers are a little different, I guess, but you know, my professors, you know, I, I graduated from college with my bachelor's degree almost 10 years ago. And you know, I, I'm still saying professor so-and-so, I could never call him by his first name, you know, doctor so-and-so. I could never call them by their first names, like ever. So it's like whenever somebody has that authority over me, it's, you know, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And it's last name. It's just, and that's just something just as simple as that. Now, again, I know civilian people do that too. It's not just exclusive to military, but it's just how I grew up. And I do appreciate, you know, the stuff that I was taught that I learned growing up 
you know, how to be patriotic, how to not only love my country, but to be able to criticize my country and to use my, my rights as an American. So like for instance, it wasn't, it's not blind patriotism. I do acknowledge the issues and the mistakes and the, you know, the, the negative things that the United States has done to its citizens, you know, people around the world. I, I acknowledge that. I'm not one of those, you know, oh, my country is the greatest. It's never done anything wrong. Like I acknowledge that. And that's kind of why some people call me unpatriotic. They're like, well, you're, you're focusing on the United States doing this, this, and this. You're unpatriotic. I'm like, well, I'm just acknowledging it. I'm not focusing on it. I'm just saying, you know, there was slavery. There was discrimination. There was racism. There's, you know, segregation. I'm just acknowledging that. I'm not saying, you know, that's what our country is today, but I acknowledge it. Like, I don't try to erase history. And especially as a social studies teacher, it'd be kind of a problem if I tried to erase history. But I'm like, no, I don't, I don't use that against the country. It's a way of acknowledging the past and also talking about how we've evolved as a society, as Americans. So when people say, oh, you're un-American, you know, oh, you hate the military. And I'm like, my dad, I grew up in an army family. How are you going to tell me I hate the military? Like, this was my life. How are you going to tell me I hate the military? I hate the country. Like, this was my life growing up. But one thing that I did appreciate my my dad for and other you know people in his unit also that I met and interacted with that they they did not have blind patriotism and maybe because when they got to be older or it could be just that was just their personality but they did not have blind patriotism and they did not instill that in their children and I appreciate that because I've met some military kids and I'm like your head is in the clouds bro you need to come on down but you know they did instill that in in us you know it was important to be patriotic but it was not important to just be a blind patriot you have to acknowledge the evils of society the past or or whatever you have to do it not saying it's you know it has an effect like oh we still have slavery today well slavery was outlawed in 1865 with the 13th amendment so it's like we don't have slavery today well some people say we're slaves to the system okay chattel slave we don't chattel slavery today but it was a part of our history. It was a part of American society. And it's something that we should acknowledge, something we should talk about. You know, we shouldn't try to sugarcoat it or erase it from society or erase it from history or make it something it's not. Because, I mean, of course, and then the argument is every country had slavery. Of course, every society in the world has slavery. Yes, they have. But for us, it's important to acknowledge it because it's important to see how the country transformed and evolved from that. I mean, so it's like, in the 17, 1776, when we were founded, as to 2020, the United States of America has transformed in a way that is just unimaginable. And it's it's a beautiful thing. And it's important to acknowledge that. If you don't acknowledge the past, you can't explain the present or the future. So it's like, if we don't acknowledge that stuff that happened in the past, it's not going to make sense to how we got to where we are today. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not un-American. I'm not unpatriotic. You know, if you can, you can think... I am if you want. I mean, that's your opinion. That's just how I grew up and how I feel, even as an adult. As a history teacher, you know, government teacher, that's just something that, you know, I grew I grew up with. Those values were instilled in me to be patriotic, but not a blind patriot. So, again, I went way off topic. Um, if anybody actually listens to my entire podcast, I applaud you. You are awesome because... <laughs> I mean, I just, I go off topic, but I guess that's kind of the thing of having a podcast, right? You can talk about whatever you want to talk about. It doesn't matter if it's off topic or not. But the issue is that it gives me a, I have a hard time naming the episodes and giving a description. So as you see, a lot of them says like random foolishness or rambling or whatever. 
but so with this one I think I'm gonna label it like um I don't know military kid uh governor coronavirus president I don't I don't know I'm gonna name China I don't know what I'm gonna name it but I'm actually watching uh Fox News and the president's uh coronavirus task force briefing is about to start shortly so I'm gonna go ahead and cut this so I can go ahead and watch the briefing and I will talk to you next time.